Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I'd like to speak to you from this passage, not just this verse alone and other passages in the Bible. And my subject tonight is in all these things, and you may be seated. Well, I just thought I would announce, first of all, tonight that we are not in heaven yet. I'm not sure any of you even thought you were in heaven yet. By the way, life has been for you today, this week, this year, and all of your life. When we get to heaven, there will be some dramatic changes that take place in us. The Bible said in 1 Corinthians 15 that our mortal body will put on immortality and our corruptible flesh will put on incorruption. That's what will take place when we get to heaven. Behold, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. In order for you to survive eternity, you have to put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. I'm looking forward to that day in my life and for the church. A corruptible body refers to one that ages, wears out, and is subject to physical corruption, aches, pain, sickness, and death. A mortal body just refers to a body that is subject to the eventuality of death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and we know after that the judgment. So this is the mortal body. Paul said that we live in this earthly tabernacle that ages, gets sick, and eventually does pass away. Modern medical science has done marvelous things to alleviate suffering and extend life, but it has not conquered aging, sickness, or death. In heaven, however, your body will literally be changed into a body that does not age, does not get sick, does not ache, does not die. As we were singing songs about heaven a couple weeks ago on Heritage Sunday, I just had a thought that occurred to me, and uh, I leaned over to Brother Osborne, who has the same affliction as me, and I said, in heaven, Brother Osborne, do you think that there will be baldness? Because it's not a sickness... You know, it's not a sign of aging, I don't think. But I was just curious about that, and I guess in heaven it will not matter because the Bible said in heaven we're neither married or given to marriage, so you won't be looking for a guy with a full head of hair there. Not only will you be changed, but you will be changed forever. Not just a season of relative calm followed by storm. Heaven will not be subject to those seasons of suffering that come in our life. Revelation 21 tells us that a new heaven and new earth will be there. The first heaven and earth will pass away. There will be a holy city coming down from God 
out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. And John said, I heard a great voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and be their, they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God, the Bible said, Revelation 21 and 4, shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's the eternity that God has planned for us. God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Anybody have any pain just this week in your body? You had a little pain here or some pain there in heaven. Pain-free, eternal existence. Originally, God created Adam to be a living soul, eternal, sinless. He did not know about sin. He did not earn his living by the sweat of his brow. He didn't know about a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. There was no death in his vocabulary. There were no thorns. He did not experience pain. Those were the result of the fall. And we charge God foolishly when we blame God for what sin introduced into life and into this world. We find ourselves in a predicament trying to resolve issues that the Bible explains very clearly. But in this life, this side of heaven, the Bible tells us that you know we're not in for a perfect life of bliss. Where when you get saved, you're healthy, wealthy, wise, and never have trouble. In fact, Jesus spoke about this, and I want to share just a few excerpts from verses from Jesus and Paul. Jesus said, you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus said that the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they hated me, he said, they will hate you. The world hates you, he said, because I have chosen you out of the world. And if they persecuted me, Jesus said... They will persecute you. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. When afflictions and persecutions arise, as they will, the Bible says that it is like a person, uh, he gives the parable of the soils, and this is Mark's rendering of this. Some people are like the seed sown on stony ground that don't have any depth. And afterward, when affliction or persecution arise because of the word, because of your faith in God, they immediately are offended. But I just want to point out that it's kind of in the script of life that there will be affliction and persecution to even those of us who love God. It arises because of our faith. But Jesus despised... Sickness, disease, affliction, pain, death. There are lots of explanations why he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. I think there are many explanations or possible explanations. But everywhere he went, he healed diseases. He raised from the dead. He cast out devils. He brought the kingdom of God wherever he went. And we see the kingdom of God come through those things. Well, when he ascended into heaven... After his death, burial, resurrection, and 40 days of ministry 
after that resurrection, he left behind people who were afflicted, possessed, sick. And we continue in that world waiting for the moment when our corruptible puts on incorruption and our mortal puts on immortality. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 that we glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation, trouble, worketh patience. He said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 that he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our trouble to make sure we know that there will be trouble on this earth. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also shall the consolation abound by Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said we have this treasure of the Holy Ghost in an earthen vessel that the excellency of the power should be of God and not of man, not of us. Paul said we are troubled on every side. We are distressed. We are distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, not forsaken, cast down, not destroyed, always bearing about the in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. He said this is our life. Our life is trouble on every side. It is perplexity. It is persecution. Sometimes it's being cast down. But it is always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that our outward man perishes. He said that our light affliction, that worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. But Paul said, in this, in this earthly tabernacle, we groan. We'll talk about this more from Romans chapter 8 in a little while. But Paul said, we desire to be clothed with our house which is from heaven. There's something in all of us that is an anticipation of that change. Corruptible to incorruptible. Mortal to immortality. Where we put on or are clothed with that earthly tabernacle where there is no more sorrow, death, sin, suffering. Because we are in heaven, but it is yet to come. Paul said, in this tabernacle we still groan. Being burdened. For we want to see mortality swallowed up in life. I mentioned this already, but Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 7, I'm exceeding joyful in all of our tribulation. What an attitude that he had about suffering. He said, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforts them that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. In Philippians 1.27, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. And whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and purpose, fighting together for the faith 
which is the good news. Paul said, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you've been given not only the privilege of trusting Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Paul said, I've learned in whatever state or condition I am in, therewith to be content. He said, I know both how to abound and how to be abased. I know how to be hungry and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Paul wrote to Timothy, you know my life, my purpose, my long suffering. He said, you know about the persecutions and the afflictions that have come to me. But Timothy, I want you to know that all that live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. But Timothy, make note of this. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, that's life in general. That's the writings of the Bible about what we can expect in this life and why Paul might have written that if in this life only we had hope in Christ, we would be of all men most miserable. But our hope in Jesus Christ is not just for a happy here and now. It is for a hereafter. It is for our hope in heaven. Amen. Our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then Paul said, hang on, folks. It's going to get worse. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight to hear all this good news? First Timothy 4, Paul said in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. They're going to have their conscience here with a hot iron, and I won't give all of the details of that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes again that in the last days, perilous times are going to come. Men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, proud, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. He goes through this high, long list, rather long list of, you know, all of the details of how it will be at the end time. And I'm not here to just talk about the end time so much, except just to tell you that if you're waiting for everything to get better, you might ought to quit waiting on things to get better and pray for God to help you to get stronger. If you're looking for heaven on earth, you're going to be sorely disappointed. We live in a fallen world on a doomed planet. Amen? That doesn't mean that we abandon our political process. We don't drop out of life and hide in a cave waiting for the coming of the Lord. We exercise our human rights and American rights. But ultimately, we are not citizens of this world. And our expectations of life in Jesus Christ should not be that there's nothing to overcome, but there's power to overcome. There's something to go through, but there is strength to get through it. We are citizens of heaven. Amen. Now, I'd like for you to go with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to walk through several verses here. Because I want to talk to you tonight about all these things. 
Because Paul said, in all these things we are more than conquerors. He did not say that all of these things that we might name are going to disappear when you get saved and get thoroughly right with God. There are people that live the myth of what some people would call American Christianity, a version that the kingdom of God has come to earth and that means that it is perfect tense, that everything is perfect for you. But the Bible doesn't teach that this world is going to get better. You can get better as a Christian, but we are not living for here and now. We're living for our great reward in heaven. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When you receive the Holy Ghost, speak with other tongues and other times in your life. It is the Spirit that bear the Holy Spirit that bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs or joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon, this proves that Paul was a southerner. The word reckon means counted to be so. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation that something in us that is looking forward to that change, corruptible to incorruptible, mortal to immortality, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that is what we live for, amen? The earnest expectation of the creature, the created thing, the being, that's us, all right? Is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now there are other passages that would tell us that to the people of the world that are unsaved, we are like the offscouring of the earth. We are the weirdos that live for God and live for heaven. Now we're not weirdos in the way we conduct our lives. We work on our jobs. We're outstanding citizens, the hardest workers in our workplace, the highest achievers by our ability That's who we are. But the people who are hedonistic, who live for here and now, that follow the whims of the flesh, people who live their life for eternity are just like hidden. The Bible said you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. But when Christ shall appear, then you too shall appear with him in glory. There's going to be the unveiling of the people of God. And all the world will see, oh no, these were people who were chosen by Him, separated by Him, the called out ones, His church. All of creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature, the created thing, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of Him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature, the created thing, itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. A real complicated way perhaps to say 
what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about that change of corruptible to incorruptible, the glorious liberty. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Paul sees the entire earth, the world, I believe physical, material, spiritual, whether it is human or not. The whole creation is like a woman about to give birth to a child. And in this context, it is that this age is going to give birth to the future age of eternity. This world, I could say, is nine months pregnant. We are at the end of all things, ready to give birth to eternity, to a new age. The whole creation is travailing in pain together until now. And then Paul says, not only they, not just unsaved, not just the natural world, but ourselves also, spirit-filled people, sons and daughters of God, ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. And by the way, let me just pause to say, first fruits means there's more to come. The same idea as we have in the Holy Ghost, we have the down payment, the earnest of our inheritance. When you feel the Spirit moving, when He lifts us up to sit together in heavenly places on your best spiritual day, it's just a taste of glory to come, a down payment on what heaven will be like. We've got the first fruits of the Spirit. Paul said, even we ourselves, you notice how he's redundant, ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Now, I believe that God gave us rain, fruitful seasons. He gave us joy, unspeakable and full of glory. He loves us and He's given us joy that cannot be explained. Peace that is past understanding. And we don't live our lives walking around groaning like a woman about to give birth. But Paul said, those of us who have the hope of heaven, the Holy Ghost inside of us, there is an anticipation that this is not all there is. That's really my point tonight. This is not all there is. And that's why even on your best day, you groan within yourself. Waiting for the adoption. Waiting for the change to come that mortal to immortality. To wit, Paul said, the redemption of our body. All the way back in the book of Job. And Job may be the oldest story in the Bible outside of those creation stories. Here is Job who does not have a Bible that says, Though skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall, I shall see God. Job believed in a bodily resurrection. Amen. Just as the Bible teaches. Amen. The redemption of our body. Verse 24. For we are saved by hope. We have this hope of a future state, state of being, and a future world to come. 
But hope that is seen is not hope. If you have Christmas presents in your family and you're anticipating December 25th, if that's what you do, but you open the present today, you're not hoping for anything. You've already opened it now. What Paul is saying is that what you have now is not what has been promised. Remember, it's the earnest of our inheritance. It's just a taste of what is to come. So you're still hoping for something that you have not yet received. So you still have this groaning, this anticipation, this longing that this is not all there is. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? For we are, but if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We have groaning. We have anticipation. We have hope. We know that this is not all there is. This is how we feel as the sons of God and daughters of God. But Paul says that the entire creation groans. Well, I'm not trying to interpret this scripture to what I'm getting ready to say, but I I can see in the natural world the groaning of planet Earth. I've always in my mind just seen, you know, what are the seven or eight major tectonic plates that grind against one another, creating volcanoes and earthquakes. Other things can cause them, but primarily they occur along those friction points of those tectonic plates. Um, It's interesting that Jesus spoke of earthquakes in diverse places, different places. And and I just kind of see the earth groaning and travailing and all of nature and all of creation saved and unsaved, saying something is going on. You wonder about anger and men's hearts failing them for fear and what is going on in our world, the geological groaning of planet earth. I don't know about all of that. But while we laugh and love and work and play and sleep and wake, all in a world that is headed like a freight train toward the judgment, we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan within ourselves, saying, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. Amen. For John would write, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen. That is what we look for and long for. Paul said, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8 and 26. How do you get from here to there? Paul gives us great instruction. Romans 8 and 26. Remember, we just come through this passage about the groaning within ourselves. And Paul says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, our weaknesses. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I know we often speak of intercessory prayer as going to God on behalf of another person. But in Romans 8.26, Paul is speaking about the Spirit maketh intercession for us. We don't even know our infirmities. We don't know how to deal with the groanings we feel. But we can get in a place of spiritual prayer and pray according to the will of God. And the Spirit can help our infirmities. That's why we teach and pray that people who have the Spirit should live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, exercise the Holy Ghost, pray in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Jew would write, keep yourself in the love of God by praying in the Holy Ghost. There's a lot of people that cannot deal with the stress of life because they don't have this vital relationship with God. But Paul said, you can deal with this groaning, with groanings in the spirit that help your infirmities. We face challenges on many fronts. Physical, mental, emotional challenges. Some people have so much stress, feel like it's a tourniquet wrapped around their brain. Relational stress, pressures at work, stress at home, balancing schedules and budgets. But the Spirit helps our infirmities. And it makes intercession for the saints with cronings that cannot be uttered. For the Lord knows His own will, and the Spirit helps align us to His will. I think there are many things that can be averted by praying in the Spirit and aligning ourselves to the will of God. Mistakes that we kind of bypass because we align ourselves. We don't even know our own weaknesses, but the Spirit prays them out of us and prays us into obedience to the will of God. There are times we can't put our finger on the cause. We cannot identify the enemy, but by praying in the Spirit, we deal with our infirmities. Amen. You may remember several months ago, I spoke a couple more than one message on the superiority of the spiritual. Here again, I want to point out that we have equipment. We have an enabling that comes by the Holy Ghost. We're not just like everybody else who's groaning because of what's going on in our world. We have the help of the Holy Ghost to deal with the stuff that comes into our lives. Thank God for the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen? That's why we encourage worship and prayer and have altar calls and say you need to have a personal altar and a walk with God. More than just a little prayer here and there, but in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Here's Paul's insight. Romans 8, 28. You've got the help of the Holy Ghost, verse 26 and 27. Then you've got perspective. And we know. Everybody please say we know. That all things. All things. Work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are the called. According to his purpose. 
Not for everyone, but to the called, to the saved. All things work together for good. God orchestrates our lives so that even the attacks of Satan, no weapon formed against us shall prosper, right? Even the things that are intended by the devil to bring our demise work together for good. To them that love God. To them that are the called according to his purpose. You see, ultimately God's desire and his design is for you to be saved. And that's more important to him than for you to be happy, healthy, rich, famous, successful. Amen? I thank God for blessings and he does give blessings and things that accompany salvation. And he daily loadeth us down with benefits, all of that. And the Bible said, you've given up everything in this life to follow me. You're going to receive houses, lands, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. You're going to receive a hundredfold this in this life and in the world to come. Life eternal. So I believe in the blessings of God on our lives. Amen. But we don't live for that stuff. Amen. We live for eternity. See, sometimes we interpret the Bible through the lens of life. We look at life and how bad it's going. And we look at Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. And we feel that all things are not working together for good. That's why I'm glad Paul didn't say, and we feel. He said, and we know. What I know brings my emotions back. Brings me into check. When I don't feel God, when I don't feel good, when I don't feel that all things work together for good, I still know all things work together for good. I still have a Bible that I can read and I wrestle my emotions to the ground and say, I'm going to believe what I know, not what I see and not what I feel in this moment. See, I don't always see how God is working all things together for good. But I trust that he is. That he's in control of the processes of bringing us through all things. Now Paul goes on, verse 29. By the way, Romans 8 is the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. This is what the Holy Ghost does in your life. More than making you feel good or speak in tongues. In Romans 8 earlier, he speaks about quickening your mortal bodies. I kind of jumped in the middle of Romans 8. Look at what Paul says. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Not a unique resurrection but a resurrection for all of us. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, whom he called, then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. Now I want to kind of summarize this passage, that God has a path of perfection for his people. He doesn't predestinate individuals, but he predestinates the church. And if you choose to stay in the church, and you fall under the provision 
of God's perfecting in your life, the predestination of His church. So I choose to stay in the process, to not jump ship in the middle of the storm. Right? Paul said God calls us. He justifies us, makes us just as if we never sinned. He doesn't talk about it here, but most of the New Testament epistles are written to talk to us about our sanctification, the process of actually becoming holy. And then Paul said he glorifies us. I've taught on this verse before, but from start to finish, he's working in your life. You come to him a dirty, lost sinner. You repent of your sins, baptize in Jesus' name, fill with the gift of the Holy Ghost. When you experience new birth, he makes you just as if you had never sinned. You might still have drugs in your house. You might still be involved in illegal activity. But on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to God's plan of salvation, he declares you just as if you had never sinned. Amen. And over your lifetime, he cleans out all of that stuff. He changes you. Be ye holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. And it's the will of God, even your sanctification. But then at the end of life, he glorifies us. That's that, that change that I spoke about, mortal to immortality and corruptible to incorruption. So from start to finish, he is working all things for good. To them that love God. It's not going to leave you languishing in your trial. Your grief and your stress. The spirit helps your infirmities. You've got to keep this big picture in mind. That all things are working together for good. And that God has justified you. And he's sanctifying you. And he'll glorify you. He's working all of this in your life. And then after Paul finishes talking about what God has done for us, then he asks this question. What shall we then say to these things? If God is doing all this in my life, there must be some conclusions that I can draw. Amen. Some things we can say about this. Too many people look at the news and draw their conclusions about God, the Bible, and the church. Too many people look at their own struggles and write their own spiritual obituary. The problem with our outlook is what we're looking at. Are we looking at God in His Word or at our bleak circumstances? Like the Apostle Peter, who's looking at the wind and the waves instead of Jesus. If we look at the winds around us of trouble blowing in our world, we lose sight of the promises of God. Amen? But Paul said, when I look at what God has done for me, what shall I then say to these things? And there are three things that he says. I've taught about this several years ago, just these three verses or three ideas in a message, our confidence in God. Just part of what I want to say tonight. Paul said, the first thing I know is that if God be for us, who can be against us? If I've got the biggest, baddest guy on my side, who am I worried about in a fight? If I have God on my side, if I've God on my side, then I don't have to fear what man can do to me. 
I love what Jesus said when he said, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. Do you think that God and the devil are going to get in the ring and go 15 rounds and there's going to be a decision by the judges? No, never a thousand times. No, one angel will take him and throw him in a pit and bind him for a thousand years. We'll narrowly look upon him and say, is this the one that deceived the nations? I just want to tell you that if God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You were not redeemed with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If God did not spare the most extravagant, expensive price to redeem your soul from hell, to buy you back, to atone for your sins. Do you think he's going to pull you out of sin and then let you die in the church? Do you think he's going to save you from eternal punishment and torment only to let you kind of hack your way through the jungle of life without any help at all? Paul said, no way. If God is for us, who can be against us? He paid the ultimate price, and because of that, he will freely give you all things. Anything you need to make it from here to heaven, he spared no expense to save you, and he will spare no expense to keep you. Amen. He's not a stingy God. What shall we then say to these things? God before us he will give you the things that accompany salvation he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus he will keep you from falling amen he'll begin and complete the good work in your life if God is for you no one can be against you that's the first thing Paul said based on everything that God has done for me no one can be against me and then Paul asks this next question, and I, it's two verses I'm going to put together, but who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Satan is the accuser of God's people. And there are times, there are times when our own hearts condemn us with feelings of guilt. There is a sorrow of the world that we kind of psychologically believe that we're not right with God. But God Almighty is the only one who is righteous enough to judge by the law that He created. And He chose To not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's not in the condemning business. He's in the justifying business. Amen. And even now, he is your chief advocate, your lawyer, your defense attorney at the right hand or a position of power making intercession for you. It is the legal role of the blood of Jesus Christ to say that that person is covered by my blood and there are no sins on the charge of God's elect. 
There is no such thing as spiritual identity theft. Amen. The devil cannot lay anything on your charge. Amen. You can't conjure it up by your own feelings. Amen. If you've been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no one that can condemn you. It's been several years that I spoke about conquering condemnation. It's amazing how many people battle guilt, remorse, condemnation from the past. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7 about the sorrow of the world that worketh death. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. We do a great job of beating ourselves up, pushing ourselves down, feeling unworthy of the love of God and the grace that he's given us. And of course, you deserve nothing but an eternal lake of fire. That's what I deserve. But that's not even the point. Jesus died to save me from that. I don't have it because I deserve it. I have it because I didn't deserve it. But I believed in what Jesus did for me on the cross. Amen. And if he saved me from sin, then I know he can keep me. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can condemn us? There's no answer given in Romans 8. It's an implication. No one can be against you and no one can condemn you. Verse 35. Who, I like the way Paul kind of makes this, he personifies it. He sees it as a, a person, not just a thing. He'll name things. But he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Then he starts asking What possibilities? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So I want you to see that Paul doesn't say that we will be delivered from all these things, but it is in all these things that we are more than conquerors. It is in trouble. It is in distress. It is through persecution. It is in times of famine or nakedness, being destitute or peril, fear of our life, or sword, martyrdom. That we are spiritually overcomers. All of us have witnessed the spiritual meltdown and failure of people who once served God. And you may wonder, what was it that took them down? Was it the heat of trial? Maybe it was discouragement. Perhaps they were disillusioned because someone they respected failed God. Maybe it was a temptation that was so strong they could not run from it. Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. All of these things in 20, verses 35 and 36 are related to trials that come against us in life. Trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. 
But it is as if Paul shouts at the very top of his lungs. In my text tonight, Romans 8 and 37. Who shall be against us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us? But Paul kind of screams, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are over conquerors or super conquerors, the original language would imply, through him that loved us. And all of these things, no matter what these things might be for you, we are more than conquerors. Paul makes the second run at this list toward the end of the chapter, verses 37 or 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth or any other created being shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul believed that there are powers that work in the universe that would try to separate you from God. But whether it was death, the sword, seductive influences, angels, demons, powers that would come, whether it be height or depth, whether it be false doctrine that would come, whatever it was, Paul was convinced, he was utterly unshakable in his conviction that nothing can separate you from God. He has a confidence in the Lord that our hope is based in the victory that Jesus Christ won on the cross and the invincible power of Jesus Christ, His reign in heaven. That whatever mysterious or menacing would come against us, that it cannot overcome us. That the cross of Jesus Christ was a decisive defeat of everything that was against God. And while the universe may be bent on savage rebellion and hostility against God and His people, there is no one that can be against us. There is no one that can condemn us. And there is no one who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mentioned this verse earlier, but in John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In me you might have peace. In the world... You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In me, you have peace in times of trouble. He wanted us to cheer up because of the ultimate victory that he would win on the cross. That would be our victory. He overcame the world, and we can too. Paul said, nay, in all these things, we are more and conquerors through him that loved us. Our problem is that when we read the Bible and stories in the Bible, we can race to the end and read the end of the story and know the outcome and have great confidence that God's going to take care of them because we see how the hero or heroine turns out, the story turns out for them. And the people who were in the middle of that didn't see the end of the story. Probably the most conspicuous example of someone who doubted the outcome was Jacob, Joseph's dad. There's Jacob who thinks that Joseph is dead. Now it's famine in the land. 
He sends his boys down to Egypt to get food. And the prime minister of Egypt, the second in command, asked millions of questions, lots of questions. And he says, oh, you've got a younger brother. Mm-hmm. They don't know that it's Joseph. They don't know that the youngest brother, Benjamin, is his blood brother by mother and father. Bring him to me. So the boys go back to father Jacob. And they say, I got bad news for you, dad. Prime Minister of Egypt says, if we want any more food, we've got to bring Benjamin back to him. Genesis 42, 36. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me, you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is dead. And Simeon, he thinks, is dead. He's held there as a hostage of sorts. And you will take away, take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. And in the middle of your own trial, predicament, or story, there are some days that's how you feel. All these things are against me. But what you don't know is that God works all things together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose and in all these things we are more than conquerors what Jacob doesn't know and he doesn't have enough faith to say is that God was not against him the famine was not against him amen I love the words of Joseph to give tremendous perspective on this whole story from Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. This is Joseph to his brothers. When he reveals himself to them, and they're shaking in their boots, because this is the half-brother that they intended to kill, decided to sell into slavery, that as far as they knew, was serving time in a dungeon, working in somebody's house, or maybe long dead. They would have never dreamed that the wealthy, powerful stranger standing in front of them was the brother they tried to destroy. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. We have the advantage of knowing the end of the story. But Jacob did not. God has the advantage of not just knowing the end of the story. God has the advantage of writing the end of the story. And we know that all things Work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And that's why Paul could say, Nay, in all these things, in all these things, in all these things that you're dealing with right now, we are more than conquerors. Would you stand with me right now? The worship team is coming. And I want us to just lift our hearts to God. Would you ask the Lord to give you a perspective? of his great work in your life, that you would not judge the story that's being written, 
with the story half finished. Let's lift our hearts to God right now and pray. Lord, in Jesus' name I come right now. And I pray, Lord, over your people right now, every, every man and woman, every young person in this room right now that is looking at their lives, oh God, and seeing the attack of Satan or the trouble they're in and maybe the futility, God, of what they're trying to accomplish with their lives. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as you prepare us for eternity, you would give us the perspective of the word of God, that we are not in heaven yet. You have it yet to come. And we groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, Lord. But while we groan and while we wait, you are working in our lives, all things together for good. No one can be against us. And no one can condemn us. And no one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lift our eyes today, I pray, God. Let us see that there is an end of the story. That there is a beautiful outcome. That there is a heaven to gain. That there is a hell to shun. Hallelujah. 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 I bless your holy name tonight, Lord. Anoint our eyes with thy salve that we can see, Lord. Give us clarity, Lord, of your purpose and your work in our lives. person that has discouraged God, who sees no end in sight, Lord, that you would give them hope today. Hope, O oh God, for that which is not yet seen, present that is not yet open, but is certain, O oh God, is certain is your word, Lord God. In Jesus' name I pray.